0: New York Times calls for banning coffee shops after learning people can have uncensored conversations there. (laughs) I love the Babylon Bee. Hi, you're listening to Write From Karen. My name is Karen. This podcast is about a little bit of everything. My life, my writing, book reviews, politics, and religion. Grab a cup of coffee and get comfortable. I have a lot to say about nothing. Hello. Welcome to episode number 17 of Write From Karen, the podcast version. It's the podcast version because I have a blog. It's called writefromkaren.com. W-R-I-T-E fromkaren.com. No, I'm not one of those Karens. At least I hope not. At least not yet. <laughs> no, I will never be because your business is your business. Your business is not my business. So how are you doing? It's been a rough week for people in the Midwest this week. A lot of weather issues, if you haven't been paying attention. For us personally, I live in Missouri, and we had our fair share of bad weather, not going to lie. We had about a week of ice, and then we had a week of snow. We got two snow storms, snor- snow, snow storms, One, we got about five inches. And the second one, we got about two more inches or so they say, I think we actually got more. But we got so much that we were snowed in, meaning that it was really hard for me to get out of my driveway to go to work because the snow was so deep and soft that um, a lot of people got stuck. Thankfully, I did not. I have a great husband who has a big F250 diesel truck and he took me to work a couple of times this week. Once you got to the main roads it wasn't bad, but our side roads were never touched like at all from the city, which I understand there's a lot of side streets in our town and they probably don't have the manpower to get to it, but man that's frustrating when you can't even get out of your neighborhood because the snow is so deep. But we didn't lose our power. We didn't have any pipes break. We had running water. So I am not complaining. It was inconvenient. It was messy. Um, you know, But it's winter. We get these sometimes. We're prepared. Our pipes are under our house. And we have heat that gets piped down under our house, so our pipes, they don't freeze, thank goodness. However, you poor Texans, people that live in Texas, wow, do I feel sorry for you guys. You've had quite the week. I know that you guys are not really used to having these cold, cold temperatures. I mean, granted, we got down to negative 10 here in my town one day, um, but it stayed you know, in the single digits for several days, and then dipped below, you know, zero, several nights. And I wouldn't say we're exactly used to this kind of weather. But we do have this kind of weather occasionally. I looked it up last time we had negative degree temperatures was in 2014. And we did have a huge ice storm in 2007, a couple of inches actually um, built up on the power lines. And we had a bunch of trees that were not trimmed back from these power lines. So when the power lines got weighted down by the ice, it would snap the tree limbs or vice versa. The tree limbs weighed the <laughs> weighed the power lines down and snapped the power lines. And we lost our electricity uh, for like 11 days straight. And it was crazy. I felt like I was living, you know, in the olden times where you spent all of your day just preparing to survive the night. So we were kind of due. For a winter storm, we've had several mild winters, and uh, you know weather is cyclical. Whether you want to admit that or not, it is. And again, like I said last time, was in 2014, so we were due for another winter storm. I was not surprised to see it happen to us anyway. Um, but you know, our area we have this kind of weather. It's not terribly unusual to experience this kind of stuff in the winter time. So. And I realized that in Texas, they don't really routinely have this kind of weather. So it sounds like a lot of the houses were not built to withstand this, This kind of bitter cold, you know, pipes were, were bursting in people's houses. And they come home from work and water is, you know, running from their ceiling and no running water, no drinkable water, and, uh, and of course, no electricity. In these bitter cold temperatures, I can't even imagine. A lot of people died because of the carbon monoxide poisoning from, you know, using propane tanks and heaters and things like that. So <clears throat> I feel sorry for you, Texas. I really do. It sounds like you've had one heck of a week, a couple of weeks, really. And um, I believe that the governor declared a state of emergency for the entire um, state because so many people were suffering. And I have to say, pretty disappointed in Senator Cruz. I know that he's gotten a lot of flack from social media and from people in general for him and his family going to Cancun during all of this craziness. I understand he had tickets. I understand it's a pain in the butt to not be able to refund those tickets. So you want to use them. So you don't lose the money. I get all that. I do. I understand that you want to get your family out. You know, you, you're entitled to a vacation, sir. Absolutely. You work hard. You know, get your family out. But in the same in the same breath, you're also a public official representing the people of Texas, and that was a boneheaded move, sir, to go to Cancun, where it's nice and warm, sunshine. And the majority of your state is without power, without water. Um, That's not cool, man. A lot of people pretty upset by this move. Um, I don't know that it warrants people standing outside his house demanding that he resign. I don't know that it warrants all this cancel culture. Because, you know, that's where we always go when something displeases us or offends us, which anymore, that's everything. So I don't know if you should really worry about that anymore. But, but um he doesn't deserve all of the crazy hate that he's been receiving him and his family, which by the way, leave him and his wife or leave his wife and his kids alone. That's not cool, guys. Leave the families alone. He made a bad decision. And he's apologized for it. You know, he's He knew immediately when he got on the plane, it was probably not a good idea to do it. He shouldn't have done it. He's in the public eye. People are watching him. They're just waiting for him to do something stupid like this so they can pounce on him and do what they do best, which is spread hate. So I have to say, in one of the few times I actually agree with the other side this time, it was a boneheaded move. But he's human. He was just trying to take care of his family. You know, what's done is done. Let's all move on. Everybody calm down. Anyway, so what exactly went wrong with the whole Texas thing? Well, everybody's blaming the windmills and the green energy, which I mean, it's that's part of the problem. It's not the problem. They do have coal, they do have natural gas, they do have solar they do rely heavily on the windmills, but that is not the reason why they lost power. They're just not, the communities in Texas, the state as a whole, they're, they're just not used to these bitterly cold, crazy weather patterns that come around periodically. And they probably won't have anything like this again for who knows how many years, whenever the last one was, probably about the same time A period for the next one. Um, But the point is, it probably will happen again, at some point. And I just hope that the people of Texas are prepared for it this next time that they take precautions, have backups, that kind of thing. So this doesn't happen in the future. It's not unprecedented, like they're always claiming all these disasters to be. It just means it was surprising, and they were unprepared that's basically all it is. So, you know, I just I just hope that them as well as everybody else in the country, just wakes up to the fact that this kind of stuff is going to happen, it's going to take you by surprise, just like that ice storm in 07. For us, we were not prepared, we didn't have a generator. We had no idea we had, we were not prepared in the least. We have since learned from that experience we have to have a generator on backup, we do, we have an emergency box full of uh, food rations in case we can't make it out to the grocery store, so that we have have some food to eat. Um, You know, we're prepared for anything like that happening in the future. I hope it doesn't ever happen again. But I think that's an unrealistic and idealistic attitude to have about something that you have zero control over. And I don't care what anybody says. Human beings do not have any control over the weather, any climate change. They just don't. Humans in the grand scheme of things are just ants. We're insignificant. We have no power whatsoever. We like to think we do, but we don't. All we can do is be prepared for the unexpected. And that's what I hope everybody gets out of this experience in Texas. Just be prepared. I don't know if you've seen this viral video that's been going around of Trump's lawyer, his defense attorney, kind of sparring with a CBS News reporter, I use that term loosely, uh, who basically tries to argue with him. That, you know, hey, the evidence that was presented in, in Trump's impeachment trial, there was just a small amount, just insignificant, really, just a few things that were doctored. I don't see what the big deal is. Why are you getting so upset? Why why should this make any difference whatsoever? <laughs> and the attorney comes back. It's not okay to doctor a little bit of evidence. The point is, no evidence should ever be doctored. Evidence is evidence. It's truth or it's not. And if it's not the truth that you want, you don't have the right to doctor it, to make it into something that you want. And the fact that this reporter just acts like it's no big deal. She doesn't understand why, why he's getting so upset about this is unbelievable. Well, what's really cool about this whole interview, again, I use that term loosely, is that he's not having it. He's not having it. He is fed up with her. He doesn't want even to talk to her anymore. You can tell by his body language and what he says. He gets more and more curt with her. Till the very end, he just gets so disgusted. He's done. He just takes his microphone off and says, you know, you guys are not interested in the truth. I'm done. And he takes his microphone off and walks away. And her facial expression is so funny. Like, oh, 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 I see. Well, I, I see you're taking your microphone off now. So yeah, interview is over. Anyway, it was very satisfying to watch someone actually stand up to the media and, you know, let them know, dude, you're not going to bully me. You're not going to try to trick me into saying something, you know, that's, you know, the next sound bite. It is what it is. Take it or leave it. And I just think more people, I wish more people, both regular people and politicians would just stand up to this crazy media and just say enough is enough. Stop with the personal agendas. I'm not going to play your game. So it was really refreshing to see him act like that. And, um, you know, he's not in this to He's not in this for the fame, for the glory, for the sound bites. He's just a lawyer trying to do what's right. And I'm sorry that, you know, it's not it didn't the outcome is not to your liking, that you don't agree with the outcome. I don't care. The truth is the truth. And I just wish more people would have that attitude. Um, let's see. Voters now believe Joe Biden is a puppet of the far left. I mean, we people on the right were trying to tell you from the very beginning that this is what was going to happen. He's not really a figurehead. He's a puppet. The question is, who is pulling his strings? That's the real question. For much of the 2020 presidential election campaign, many critics of Joe Biden charged he was catering to the extremists in the Democratic Party. They warned that in his effort to attract votes, he would advocate policies that were not in alignment with mainstream America. I don't even know if you should call it mainstream America anymore. I feel like that normal people, logical people, people that don't run on emotion are not the mainstream. They're the fringe group. I feel like the mainstream anymore are just people that are quick to get offended, quick to get upset, you know, Cancel culture, yada, yada, yada. The Sun reported Biden was being described in the political world as a puppet of Nancy Pelosi and far left Democrats. In a recent interview with Paul Bedard's, Bedard's Washington Secrets column, Donald Trump Jr. said many Biden voters now realize that they have been played and that he's not the moderate nice guy they made him out to be. Duh. He's a puppet of the radical left, and he's their dream guy because they'll sign whatever they put in front of them, and then he doesn't know the difference. Now, a new Rasmussen poll finds 54% of likely voters think Biden is a puppet of the left. Only 40% disagree. Less than a month after President Joe Biden's inauguration, most voters believe the Democrat is a puppet of the radical left and not the moderate nice guy he was portrayed as being during the election campaign. Rasmussen said. Not only do 82% of Republicans agree with Trump Jr.'s statement, but so do 27% of Democrats and 54% of voters not affiliated with any major party, the report said. The survey found 49% of likely voters believe the left wing has too much influence over Biden. I don't know about you guys, but this scares me that the president of our country is so easily manipulated and isn't really the one calling the shots. I mean, can you honestly say whether you hated him or loved him? As far as Trump was concerned, did you really think that someone else other than Trump was calling the shots? I'm guessing that you didn't. He he was strong. He, he backed up his decisions. He made his own decisions. I think we all know that that is not the case with Biden. And that's pretty scary. Here's something else that's a little shocking and disturbing. This is from TheBlaze.com. Nearly a third of Americans want to break up the United States into like-minded countries. The divide between Americans seemed seems to be widening in recent years, and the political chasm doesn't appear to be narrowing anytime soon. The major partisan divide in the country has gotten to the point that many Americans have contemplated a national divorce because they believe there are far too many ideological differences to bridge the line of demarcation. An eye-opening poll found that a shocking percentage of Americans are in favor of the dissolution of the United States. According to a new Bright Line Watch survey, nearly a third of Americans want to break up the United States and create smaller, like-minded countries. The survey found that 29%, 10 strongly, 19% somewhat, of Americans were in favor of the dissolution of the United States into like-minded regions. There were noticeable differences based on political party lines and geography. Surprisingly, 37% of independents were most inclined for the country to go its separate ways. There were 35% of Republicans who wanted to succeed, followed by 21% of Democrats who wanted their own country of like-minded individuals. Brightline Watch proposed to divide the U.S. into five regional unions based on geography and political affiliation. The Pacific is California, Washington, Oregon, Hawaii, and Alaska. Mountain, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. South region, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Heartland, Michigan, Ohio, West Virginia, Illinois, and Indiana, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, and Nebraska. And the Northeast section, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, and the District of Columbia. While respondents, When respondents were asked how likely they would be to support joining these hypothetical regional unions, 33% of the South and the Pacific said they would. There were 50% of Republicans in the Red South region who were ready to create their own nation, and there were 41% of Democrats in the Blue Pacific Union who wanted to separate from the rest of the country. Is that really a good idea? I mean, I guess it's on the surface, it sounds like, yeah, fine, whatever. We're going to go our own way. You go your own way. and everybody will be happy. But will they? I think it's sad that we're even having this conversation to break up the United States into sections. And is it really wise to hang out with a bunch of like minded people? I feel like dissenting voices are necessary to keep groups of people from taking control. Um, Dissenting voices would help, you know, with the checks and balances of any radical, crazy ideas people might come up with. I mean, you need that voice to say, whoa, 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 hold up. Did you consider A, B and C? Instead of just like, yeah, let's do it. I'm behind you all the way. I don't know. I think it's so sad that we're having this conversation and I don't know about you all, but that's definitely not the definition of unity, which is what Biden and Harris proposally or supposedly are backing saying that they are for unity. This is not unity. That is not anywhere close to being a unified nation when you have large portions of people seriously contemplating and agreeing to split from each other. How would that work? Exactly. It's almost like the Hunger Games a situation where you've got the country divided into regions that war with each other, and you don't dare cross boundaries, you know, without consequences. I don't know. I think it's a sad commentary of our nation as a whole that we're even talking about something like that. Something else that caught my attention this week was I watched a an interview between Candace Owens and Jackie Deeson on YouTube through the PragerU channel. And for those of you that don't know who Candace Owens is, she is she is fantastic. I love her. I have a girl crush on her, which is weird because she's young enough to be my daughter, but she's, she's a black woman who is very smart, very articulate and very outspoken. And I love her courage and um, her willingness to just put herself out there and say what is on her mind and, you know, She's just, she's not scared of anything, and I love it. Anyway, she has a a, a podcast on, and she interviews these various people. Obviously, that's what podcast people do. <laughs> but one of these guests is Jackie Deeson. Again, not heard of her. I guess I've been living under a rock. I don't know where I've been on this stuff, but the big topic of the day on this podcast is they're talking about gender bending chemicals and how, um, Candice has noticed in the last 10 years or so, that men seem to be more feminine. They just look more feminine, they act more feminine, they're more emotional, like a female would be, or is characterized as, and she's wondering what the heck's going on. And Jackie is telling her, well, it's because of all these gender bending chemicals that are out there. And I remember hearing about this long, long time ago didn't pay much attention to it. But I remember hearing about this topic. And, uh, but then nothing, then I just feel like it kind of dropped off the face of the earth. No one was talking about it. Um, But after seeing this podcast and hearing more about it, I thought, you know, I'm going to do a little research on this and see what they're talking about. And this is some crazy stuff, guys. I don't know if you're paying attention, but you probably should be. Here's an interesting article that I ran across. It's on medium.com. It's called what are gender bending chemicals doing to our boys and girls? This is from April 3rd of last. No, no 2019 Karen 2020 did happen. No matter how many times we wished it didn't <laughs> um, by Ben Hall years ago. I recall watching an Alex Jones clip that popped up into my Facebook feed claiming that chemicals in the water were turning frogs gay. Now, Alex makes a lot of outrageous claims, but this one was one of the most outrageous, and rightly so, I thought, was being mocked online for stating it out loud. Today, however, that claim would appear to be true, and to my surprise, there seems to be universal agreement that gender-bending chemicals are making their way into the population at alarming levels. A recent article on New Scientist claims that gender-bending chemicals found in everyday plastics are feminizing our boys by mimicking the female hormone estrogen. This process disrupts the normal development of baby boys. The incriminating findings came from a study of 85 baby boys born to women exposed to everyday levels of phthalates during pregnancy. It was carried out by Shauna Swan at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, New York, U.S., and colleagues. Another study from the University of Exeter found that 86% of teens in the U.K. had gender-bending chemicals in their urine. 86%, guys. Wow. Data demonstrates blood and urine samples from children and adolescents contain toxic chemicals, including edricin, Endocrine disrupting BPA, which increase their risk of heart disease, obesity, asthma, and reproductive problems. Endocrine disrupting chemicals compete with natural hormones by mimicking or partially mimicking hormones to produce overstimulation or interfere or block the way hormones are made or controlled. Independent studies demonstrate negative effects of BPA and other toxins in the body, but governmental agencies and manufacturers appear unwilling to protect your health. One possible reason for the continued use of BPA is huge profits. The market of BPA was $13 billion in 2013 and estimated to grow to $20 billion by 2020. So big business once again, Screw the little guys. Screw people's health as long as they make the money. But it goes well beyond BPA and plastics. A new report warns that gender-bending chemicals are also found in food, cosmetics, and cleaning products, which put unborn babies at particular risk. The chemicals are linked to increasing levels of birth defects, testicular cancer, and falling, falling sperm counts among men, experts claim. Uh, Professor Richard Sharp, one of Britain's leading reproductive biologists, said that the chemicals block the action of the male sex hormone testosterone or mimic the female sex hormone estrogen. Women trying for her baby have been warned to f- avoid them. His report looked at studies into birth defects of boys' genitals, low sperm counts, and testicular cancer. Such problems are collectively referred to as testicular genus Dysgen- syndrome or TDS. Some of the experiments show that the chemicals work in combination, causing problems at doses doses where the individual chemicals should be harmless. The latest figures suggest that one in six men in Britain has a low sperm count and will struggle to father a child. Wow. Doctors are also worried by rising levels of birth defects, with 7% of British boys born with partially descended testes and 7 in 1,000 with malformed genitals. The number of testicular cancer cases among men in their 20s and 30s has been doubling every 25 years. Wow, that's cancer. Professor Sharp said that TDS takes root in the period between the eighth and 12th week of pregnancy. During this period, exposure to hormone mimicking chemicals can interfere with testosterone production in a fetus, preventing the sex organs from developing normally. As these chemicals seem to have a feminizing effect on boys, the girls swing the other way toward being more masculine. Gender bending chemicals make girls aggressive A new study warns that exposing unborn baby girls to a chemical found in everyday plastics could cause behavioral and emotional problems later in life. Lead author Joe Braun, research fellow in environmental health at Harvard School of Public Health in the United States, said, the study confirms two prior studies showing that exposure to BPA in the womb impacts child behavior, but is the first to show that in neutral exposures are more important than exposures during childhood. For adjusting for possible contributing factors, the high BPA concentrations were associated with more hyperactive, aggressive, anxious, and depressed behavior and poor emotional control in the girls. This relationship was not seen in the boys. It would appear that Alex was right, and the gender-bending chemicals theory is in fact true. Scary. In a world of constant corporate propaganda, which I like to call the golden age of bullshit, this issue proves that it is now more important than ever to do your own research, trust your instincts, trust what you see happening around you, because it is only you that has your family's best interest in mind. Wow, that's some pretty serious stuff. So curious, I went to the uh, FDA website to find out a little bit more about these phthalates. What are phthalates? Phthalates are a group of chemicals used in hundreds of products such as toys, vinyl flooring, and wall covering, detergents, lubricating oils, food packaging, pharmaceuticals, blood bags and tubing, and personal care products such as nail polish, hairsprays, aftershave lotions, soaps, shampoos, perfumes, and other fragrance preparations. Um, Phthalates and human health. It's not clear what effect, if any, phthalates have on human health. An expert panel convened from 1998 to 2000 by the National Toxicology Program, or NTP, part of the National Institute for Environmental Safety and Health, concluded that reproductive risks from exposure to phthalates were minimal to negligible in most cases. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released a report on March 21, 2001, titled National Report on Human Exposure to Environmental Chemicals. The report described a survey of a small segment of the U.S. population for environmental chemicals in urine. One group of chemicals surveyed was phthalates. However, the CDC survey was not intended to make an association between the presence of environmental chemicals in human urine and disease, but rather to learn more about the extent of human exposure to industrial chemicals. Uh, What we know about infant exposure to phthalates. Infants, like all consumers, are exposed daily to phthalates from a number of sources, including air, drugs, food, plastics, water, and cosmetics. The American Academy of Pediatrics has published an article stating that infants exposed to infant care products, specifically baby shampoos, baby lotions, and baby powder, showed increased levels of phthalate metabolizes in their urine. So it sounds to me like the FDA... Is basically poo-pooing it. Like, okay, well, yeah, there's maybe some effect, but not a whole lot, and I definitely wouldn't be freaked out about it. Now, this was dated August 24th of 2020. Um, but then there's an article in today's New York Post titled, Why More Men Are Suffering from Infertility Than Ever Before. Um Sperm counts in Western countries have dropped by more than 50% since the 1970s. At the same time, men's problems with conceiving are going up. Erectile dysfunction is increasing and testosterone levels are declining by 1% each year. The current state of reproductive affairs can't continue much longer without threatening human survival, warns Mount Sinai fertility scientist Dr. Shauna Swan in her book Countdown. It's a global existential crisis. Dr. Swan should know she's been researching fertility for 30 years. She studied a miscarriage boom in Santa Clara, California in the 1980s, which she eventually linked to toxic waste dumped into the drinking water by a local semiconductor plant. She moved on to sperm rates in 1997, and they've been her canary in a coal mine scenario since. In 2017, she sounded the alarm with a meta-analysis of 40,000 men that showed that sperm count fell a whopping 59% from 1973 and 2011. We are already seeing the effects. Worldwide fertility has dropped by 50% between 1960 and 2015. The United States has a total birth rate that is 16% below what it needs to replace itself. Though there are obvious factors at play, couples are conceiving later and opting to have smaller families. Swan argues that the issues run deeper than personal choice. It's no wonder then that the, assist- the assisted reproductive technology market is worth about $21 billion and is projected to increase by 10% annually until 2025. Still, fertility issues have been focused on women for too long. If women can't want to have a baby, they are often told, clean up your act, Swan writes, but it's probably more important for men to do so. Normal sperm count ranges from 15 million sperm per milliliter to 200 million per milliliter. Though the World Health Organization deems a rate below 15 million as low, Swan argues that anything below 40 million creates challenges for reproduction. Today, the the average male is nearing that number at 41.7 million sperm per milliliter. Compare him to his father, who had an average of 99 million sperm per milliliter. It's clear that this is a deeply worrying trend. Now, they're saying it's because of decreased testosterone, which... Are in phthalates, which could be caused by these phthalates that are out there, like everywhere, no matter where you look. They're everywhere. As a result, prescriptions for testosterone replacement therapies doubled between 2010 and 2013, according to Forbes. But there was one troubling side effect. 90% of men can have their sperm counts drop to zero while they're on it, Swan writes. Sexual desire has followed a similar path. A massive sexual slump is underway due to declines in people's sex drives and the interest in sexual activity, Swan writes. Men now seek help for erectile dysfunction on average seven years earlier than they did in 2005, and 26% of men who deal with it are under the age of 40. On the more extreme end of things, there have been overall increases in genital abnormalities including higher documented rates of undescended testicles and unusually small penises. These issues have been mirrored in the animal kingdom. Baltic gray seals have reduced reproductive abilities. Polar bears have smaller genitals and lower than average testosterone levels. And alligators, panthers, and minks have all shown increases in reproductive and genital abnormalities. So what's going on? Many of us simply eat too many things that are not good for us move too little, drink too much alcohol and engage in habits that are actively hindering our reproductive abilities, Swan writes. But other things are out of our control. Swan points to the plastics and chemicals in our immediate environments, compounds that disrupt the hormonal systems of both men and women and make it harder to reproduce. For example, she cites phthalates, near uh, ubiquitous Chemicals that make plastic more flexible and cosmetics and beauty products better able to absorb scent. These chemicals have been linked to the decreased production of hormones like testosterone and male reproductive outcomes, according to a 2018 review of research. Flame retardants found in mattresses and foam furniture also seem to alter the same hormones that cause infertility in men, according to a 2016 study in the Reproductive Toxicology Journal. In addition, chemicals used as stain, water, and grease repellents in fast food packaging, paper plates, and stain-resistant carpeting, among other household items, have been linked to a reduction in semen quality, testicular volume, and even penis length. Pesticides also seem to have negative effects on male fertility. One herbicide in particular used to prevent certain weeds from growing in corn and sugarcane on lawns and golf courses has been linked with lower sperm quality. Infertility doesn't just alter a man's ability to make children. It also increases his mortality risk. Infertile men die younger than their infertile peers, according to a Stanford University study. Men with sperm concentration lower than 15 million per milliliter had a 50% chance greater chance of being hospitalized for any medical reason at all and poor fertility has been linked with higher rates of diabetes, heart disease and cancers but there are some things we can do to help tip the scales they go on to write that uh, obviously quit smoking cut down on drinking maintain a healthy weight Um, yes of course Um, men who cycle regularly for 90 minutes or more per week, uh, probably shouldn't. And sauna is absolutely out of the question. Binge watching TV or just sitting for too long is also a big no-no. Cut down on your stress, which I mean, duh. And healthy diets, stay away from fad diets. Um, Men who eat a lot of processed meats, hot dogs, bacon, sausage, salami, Tend to have lower sperm counts, um, so on and so forth. So, to me, not only does it affect reproductive abilities, but it sounds like it just feminizes men overall. It decreases their testosterone, it increases estrogen it affects them, it affects girls, too much estrogen, too much testosterone, and in, in women make them aggressive. Um, so why don't we go to the source? Why don't we go to Congress and say, hey, maybe we need to stop making so many products with these phthalates in them. You know, I mean, yes, we could do all these other things to help, you know, increase our chances of having babies. But I think these phthalates are a huge um, component to, you know, um, feminizing men, basically. And that also, to me, leads to the bigger question. I mean, is that one reason why we have so much confusion nowadays? Is this why we have so many different genders, so to speak, that Men want to become women and women want to become men. And, you know, men don't seem to be men nowadays. They're, they're just women with beards. It just makes you wonder. It makes you wonder if there's any correlation between that and all of the confusion that we are experiencing right now in our world. You take a man from today's age and compare him to a man from, say, the World War II era and they're vastly different. They look different. A man from the World War II era is going to just look more masculine. He's going to act more masculine. He's going to be more of a man as traditionally defined. Whereas today's man just looks more feminine. He's not as maybe bulky body wise compared to a man from World War II. He just has this more soft feminine features, um, his his emotional health may not be as, I don't know, strong, resilient. I'm not quite sure what the word I'm looking for, but so I think Candace is on to something. I think that she's right. I think that Jackie uh, Deason is also on to something here. There's something there's something more going on. And it sounds like it's a huge business that's not going away anytime soon. And considering these articles are so recent, obviously, these scientists are noticing it and making note of it as well. So it kind of makes you wonder if this is not a conversation we need to have again. And why can't they come up with some alternative to phthalates uh, in all these products that they make that's not so damaging to human hormone levels? Anyway, I found all of this just hugely interesting and eye opening. And I encourage you to look more into this and to start paying more attention to the ingredients in this crap that we're buying. I never thought to look at the ingredients to like on a, like a vinyl shower curtain or any of these other plastics that you just take for granted or these cleaning solutions. Um, I never even thought about hairspray having any of this stuff in it. Cause whenever you think about looking at ingredients of something, you're always just assuming it's something, you know, food wise, never product wise. I just I guess I never really thought about it before, so now I will think about it. And especially if you're pregnant out there, it's definitely something to be aware of and to be cautious of and to avoid at all cost. Okay. Let's get away from all of that technical talk because my brain can't take anymore. <laughs> and you probably don't want to hear any more of my muddling through all of that crap. So let's go to the book review of the week. This was an ARC. This was an advanced reading copy. And it was The Girl in Cell 49B by Dorian Box. This is an Emily Calby book number two. And um, let's go through the, the blurb and then I'll read you my book report, basically, <laughs> my book review that I'm getting ready to post on my blog, right from Karen.com. That's W-R-I-T-E from Karen.com. Here's the blurb. Emily Calby disappeared at age 12, the only survivor of a notorious home invasion. Three years after her terrifying Odyssey in The Hiding Girl, that's the book number one that from Mr. Box, she's safe living in anonymity with her mentor, ex-gang member Lucas Jackson, before life blows up again on her sweet 16 birthday. Arrested for carrying her birthday gift, an illegal handgun from Lucas, the fingerprint scan shows her to be the missing Calbee girl, and worse, she's wanted for murder in another state. Extradited to a corrupt juvenile prison in the middle of nowhere, Emily struggles to adjust to a new code of survival while battling a vindictive prosecutor willing to resort to any means to convict her. As the law thwarts her every move, she begins to appreciate its awesome power. She discovers an unused prison law library and buries herself in the books, casting her destiny. As she fights for her life in court, the dark secrets behind the prison walls close in her cellmate, a spooky, spooky, spooky drug addict is in grave danger. So is her first love, a gentle boy sentenced to life without parole. Emily's desperate to help them, but how can she when her explosive trial brings one new disaster after another, a courtroom thriller, like no other. I'm going to read the prologue from this book. It's basically a dream of the trauma she experienced in book one. It begins at the end. I'm running through the backyard past the clothesline and swing set. The stocky man is shouting from behind me out the bathroom window. I'm coming to cut you to pieces. I'm not even into the woods before I'm swallowed by guilt. Mom. The gunshot. And Becky. Where's my baby sister? Take care of your mom and Becky. I promise, dad. Have to go back. But I barely made it out the window. Stocky man grabbing at my legs, trying to see through the bleach I sprayed in his eyes. You have to go back. But I can't. My legs won't turn. He's coming after me. I hear his footsteps pounding through the leaves. I run faster. Coward. I dive into the shallow ravine I know so well and bury myself in the leaves just before he arrives. He stops, feet shuffling in the underbrush. The crunchy leaves tickle my face and I have to hold my breath to keep them from rattling. He's muttering curse words. In the distance, the tall man is yelling, Boss man, place about to blow to kingdom come, gotta go. In a regular voice like he knows I'm there, Little girl. If I ever get my hands on you, you're going to wish you died with your mama and sister. I already wish it. A whimper as soft as a cricket chirp. If mom and Becky are already dead, this will be my grave. All I have to do is move. He'll see me and it will be all over. I let my breath out and will my trembling arm upward through the leaves. I keep my hand poised, flat and straight, like I'm raising it in Mrs. Bianche's math class. A spooky silence makes me grab onto the fantasy that he's gone. Then I hear snarky laughter. Thank you for your cooperation, Blondie. Your mama was right. You are a good girl. One click and the gun starts firing. Everything slows down. The first two bullets miss. They zip through the top layers of leaves and and halt with a thud when they hit the damp, decaying mat that gathered last winter. Two more shots miss. Maybe he'll run out of bullets. But the fifth shot is a direct hit right through the center of my chest, straight into my broken heart. Bullseye. It hurts, and I know I'm dying, but I'm not afraid. I was raised to believe. I wait for the bright light to be lifted up and join the angels. I can already picture sweet little Becky, an angel, even on earth. But something's not working right. The blood pumping out of the hole in my heart is being replaced just as fast with an inky black liquid, thick and gooey like oil. It's heavy and weighs me down, pulling me further into the ground, filling my heart in veins before overflowing from my mouth and nose and finally eyes. Choking, gasping, my eyes snap open. Just a dream, not real, not real. I lie under the covers shivering as my heart rate slows and breathing returns to normal, but there's no sense of relief because real is worse than the dream. In the actual record record of events, I didn't raise my hand through the leaves that day and die with my bro- mother and sister. I stayed frozen as a log until the stocky man left, committing a sin I can never forgive. I lived. For an extra 1146 days, I've been able to laugh and cry, read books, see sunrises, and breathe. 1147 if I count today, my 16th birthday. my review of the Girl in Cell 49B. I gave it five stars. I really liked it. Um, let me go ahead and read what I wrote on my blog. This is the second book in Emily Calby's story, though it's easily a standalone book. I did not read the first book, and though I do wonder why the men who raped and killed her mother and sister targeted her family specifically, was it random, or where her father is, and if the men who did this heinous crime are still alive or still looking for her, and why, Box does a good job of bringing me up to date with Emily's backstory without giving away too many details. In other words, I'm curious enough to want to go back and read book one. Emily has survivor's guilt over the death of her mother and sister. She ran away, but feels like she should have stayed to try and help her family. Only she knows realistically, she likely would have died as well. In a lot of ways, she wishes she had. As a result of this horrific experience, she has PTSD from the event, and she has trouble controlling her anger at times. Lucas is a gang member and professional forger who takes her under his wing. In a lot of ways, he saved Emily's life by extending her kindness and guidance when she needed it the most Lucas's girlfriend or wife is a boxer and teaches Emily how to fight and defend herself Emily channels her rage and aggression into working out and her body is toned and tough because Emily is hiding and because she is trying to put some distance between her new life and her old life she goes by Alex Alice Black Lucas forges documents for her and Emily and and for her, and Emily is Alice for three years. She is now 16 years old. Emily is a walking ju- juxtaposition. She's tough and will not shy from trouble if she sees someone getting bullied or hurt, and yet she has a big heart and a lot of compassion. These are unusual traits to package into one character, but I think Box does a good job of melting these characteristics into a likable character. And that's just it. I really don't want to like Emily. She's a badass that has killed people. True, the circumstances she killed people were due to self-defense. Still, she killed them. She graduates from self-defense to murder, and that's the gray line that Emily struggles with. In a lot of ways, her character reminds me of Dexter from the TV show Dexter. In essence, if you haven't seen Dexter, he's a man who has homicidal tendencies. He knows this and recognizes this, and yet he can't stop himself from killing people. So he channels this disorder into good He only kills murderers, people who have gotten away with murder and are free to terrorize society. Only, there's a twist. He's also a blood splatter expert who works with the police. This juxtaposition is interesting and disturbing. I've watched a handful of Dexter episodes and I wanted to like the show, but it was too gory for me. And honestly, I couldn't justify the premise, though I certainly could appreciate him getting rid of society's cancerous people. Emily is a bit like Dexter in that she channels her aggression and anger into people who are scum, bad people. I don't know if anyone can justify murder, even if it's for the good of society, but I can certainly understand it, if not exactly condone it. As a result, I have mixed feelings about Emily. She starts the story out being super aggressive, but once she's caught and recognized as the girl who escaped the tragedy of her youth, no one knew what happened to her, she just disappeared and was thrown in juvenile jail, she softens almost to the point where I'm left wondering, is this even the same girl? That shift nearly caused me to knock the star rating into a four, but again, Box does a good job of reforming her to the reader. Her actions really were justified, if not disturbing on so many levels. While in juvenile jail, she befriends her cellmate who she suspects might be might be a bit clairvoyant and falls in love with Ben, a boy from the neighboring boys juvenile jail. Once she learns Ben's story of why he's in jail, she begins to question the legality of what happened to him. After getting into some trouble while, while in jail, she's given a job in the jail library. She's saddened to see so many of the girls are not very well educated and are reading below their grade level. She also discovers a little used law library tucked into the corner with books that have never been cracked open. Emily begins reading about the law in order to try and help Ben, but ends up teaching herself more and more in order to try and help her own defense against a murder charge of a man who picked her up while she was hitchhiking. Emily soon learns that the law pretty much dictates her life, and if she has any hope of saving her own life... She has to not only learn the law, but to navigate it so she can be her own best advocate. I have mixed feelings about the ending. I can understand Emily's decision to some extent, but her tendency toward bloodthirst borders on disturbing. Emily's journey is far from over, and I'm intrigued enough that I would like to read more about her adventures. In summary, The Girl in Cell 49B is a story about a girl battling her darkest demons she has multiple demons guilt aggression and rage she also has a soft spot for underdogs emily has a dark past her mother and sister were raped and her family home was burned to the ground nearly killing her in the process she carries a lot of guilt around because she feels she should have somehow saved her family instead of running away which ultimately saved her life after changing her appearance and assuming a new identity and living as alice for three years Her aggression gets the best of her when she witnesses a nasty bully abusing his girlfriend at a gas station. Unable to stop herself, she walks up to the bully and points a gun in his face. The bully stops his behavior and they drive off, but not before the gas station employee reports her to the police and they capture her using the gas station security camera. This lands her in juvenile jail where the authorities discover after taking her fingerprints that she's the lost girl that disappeared after the horrific home invasion that killed her family all those years ago. She's also a person of interest in a murder in another state. Once she's in juvenile jail, she quickly learns how to navigate the various caste systems and befriends a few underdogs who she feels compelled to try and save. Once her own trial starts, she quickly learns that the law could quickly make or break her, and in order to give herself the best chance of surviving a fair trial, she begins using the new law library in juvenile jail to teach herself how the law works and how she can make it work for her. This is a story about grit, determination, and self perseverance. This character has had to adapt to a cruel world, learn how to fight and defend herself, while somehow managing to keep her sense of self. She's unusual in that she has a big heart, and she can't stand to see good people being treated unfairly. But she also has a dark side, a side that she finds hard to control and keep under control. Once that dark side of her is unleashed, she can be cruel, dangerous, and unpredictable. Emily's journey is just beginning, and she intends to use her newfound interest in the law to help people who can't help themselves while trying to keep her dark past from destroying her and those she cares about. So that's my book review on my blog from The Girl in Cell 49B by Dorian Box. Five stars. I do recommend it. Um, It is a little dark. Um, It's more of a, I guess, YA, I guess. I don't know. Why I said that, I guess because the character is 16 years old, the main character, but I do like it and it does make me want to go back and read book one and I, do would, I would like to go and read um, future books if Mr. Box chooses to write more. <laughs> I mean, Emily's story is not over. It's definitely not completed. So it would be a shame really if Mr. Box didn't go ahead and write her story. So we are out of time. I don't really have time to go over any funny or unusual headlines with you this week or story ideas. Um, I went a little long on the gender bending chemical stuff because I just find it so fascinating that that's um, an issue. But I highly recommend that you go to the Babylon Bee. They have some really funny stuff there, guys. It's satire. It's all made in good fun. But, um, you know, it might give you a funny story idea to uh, delve into experiment with. And so you know, just if you have a few minutes, you're looking for some story ideas, that might be a good place to go. All right, we're going to wrap this up because I have taken too much of your time. I appreciate every one of you out there listening to me, just ramble on about whatever comes to my brain. And I hope you have a great week. If you're in Texas or in the Midwest, hang in there, the weather's going to get better. And life will go on this too shall pass. So remember, be alert, not anxious, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.